It's Thursday, April 20th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Skyrockets in flight. Afternoon debacle. An Elon Musk SpaceX rocket is now an X SpaceX because it exploded a couple minutes after takeoff. Six parts over Texas. Well, that's okay. Two try is to fail. But if you are rich enough, influential enough, and control enough media, to fail is to succeed, apparently. The New York Times covered this as SpaceX Starship rocket launched, but fell short of its most ambitious goals when it exploded minutes into its flight. The ambitious goal of working. Remember, this rocket ship didn't explode in popularity. It exploded in the stratosphere about 24 miles up specifically. It didn't blow up on social media. It blew up in the actual sky. And yet, Scientific American notes, Starship, a super powerful launch system that could revolutionize access to space, soared for mere minutes, but its test flight is still being hailed as a success. Okay, let's check in on who is doing the hailing. Here we have the play-by-play from the SpaceX broadcast team. Obviously, this is, uh, does not appear to be a nominal situation. Yeah, it does appear to be spinning, but I do want to remind everyone that everything after clearing the tower was icing on the cake. Okay, but if it's phlegm-flavored icing, that is no longer a successful cake, is it? Hold on, a bunch of people in Elon Musk's employ are now cheering as a debris field hundreds of acres wide is being established. Wow, they're into it. Oh wait, hold on, I'm being told that we have the SpaceX broadcast crew's archival coverage of the Jonestown Massacre. This is the incident where over 900 people in a cult led by Jim Jones committed mass suicide, Guyana, 1978. Let us now hear that report. interesting direction. Oh wait, we have, I'm being told, we have unearthed another famous broadcast. Once again, the SpaceX team covering an aeronautic event. This, the explosion of the Hindenburg. Let's listen in as Elon Musk's SpaceX team has the call. It may go! Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! Huh, you know, it's interesting the different choices different broadcast professionals make in the moment. All right. Look, I'm all for making all the jokes about the explosion, or as SpaceX John Zinsprucker called it, the rapid, unscheduled disassembly. Rut row. I love the jokes, but I do credit the idea that even though it ended in an explosion, it was still on balance in advance with many successful elements to build on. Good, yay, science. However, If that applause and all the positive tweets and all the end zone type dances are how the Musk team treats what is at best a moment of exploratory ambivalence, I do think we might want to ask some basic questions about the conceiver of this vision. How, sir, do you define success? What emotions should accompany, say, an explosion? When a multi-million dollar piece of technology transforms into a fireball, how much should we cheer? I'm just a little worried that we can't be certain of the answers from the guy who's taken it upon himself to lead the way in developing the driverless car. Because with that, I know failure is not an option, but I thought that meant that he really wants to succeed, not that he will define failure, wreckage, and destruction as something to cheer about.
on the show today. No one's here in this singed barn but us chickens. But first, if you're one of those people who turn off the radio or pull the podcast earbuds from your ears when someone is all umming and uring their way through an interview, if you want to disown a nearby teen for inserting like into every sentence, I'm about to blow your mind, bro. My next guest, Valerie Fridland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno, says those vocal tics, they're great, they're healthy, they're communicative. She has a new book out called Like Literally Dude, Valerie Fridlin up next. And for Pesca Plus subscribers, it's a whole lot of talking about talking in the Pesca Plus feed. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to find out more. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. This new book I have in my hand by Valerie Friedland, professor of linguistics in the English department at the University of Nevada, Reno, is like literally the most eye-opening thing I've, um, I don't know, ever seen totally. Well, okay, it doesn't go that far, but it does address issues like, like, and like, literally, and um, gotta get to the um. The name of the book is Like Literally Dude, arguing for the good in bad English. Professor Friedland, welcome to The Gist. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you lie once on the cover of your book, bad English. It's not bad, is it? It's just English. It's just <laughs> English, right? That's exactly it. That's exactly what motivated the whole book is all these people that would come up to me and tell me about the bad English that their friends spoke, but often their children spoke and how it was leading to the decay of English. And I decided to write a book to explain it the way it really was linguistically speaking. So I'm not a linguist. I may be an amateur linguist. I'm definitely a professional talker. And I have learned to express the things that I observe with English, not in the form of, you know what really annoys me? But I do think it's very hard for most people to notice something about English and then say, huh, that's an interesting quirk and I hold no moral judgment about it. I think most people say, why do these kids say like so much? That's wrong. That's bad. We got to get out of that mindset though, don't we? Well, I think that you put the nail on the head there. It is really hard to hear new things and like them. I, for one, hate my smartphone. And every time they update it with new fancy, fancy features, I think, oh, my God, really? I was fine with the last one. It's hard. New things are hard, especially when new things are associated with groups or speakers that we tend to have differences with or that tend yeah. to do things like, you know, not fold their clothes and make the rooms really messy and don't seem to ever have <laughs> any opportunities for a professional life. So it's really hard I to embrace. 
Right. That's right. When those people are making their rooms messy and you just can't tell them for the hundredth time, clean your room, you can tell them, actually, it's not literally freezing. (laughs) It's 39 degrees. And you're right based on empiricism. (laughs) That's exactly right. You know, I think it's always been that case throughout history that the things that come up in our language that are different from the ones we say, we treat with suspicion and see as decay. But we are not speakers in the time of Beowulf, thank goodness, right? Because we can't read them or could we understand them. So obviously language has changed over time. And it's it's not really been something that we notice to the degree we do now and dislike so intensively. That seemed to come along in the 18th century with the rise of prescriptivism, grammar books, dictionaries, which codified English for the first time and then made us think there's a right way because that's what's written in grammar book. You're right. So, okay, you said prescriptivism, and I think most of my audience knows the difference between prescriptivism and descriptivism. And um, in linguistics these days, it is true. And all, all modern dictionary makers will say we're a descriptivist. It's not our job to say right or wrong. We just say how the language is used. But when dictionaries were started and when this effort to codify and create a taxonomy of language was created, was it to be prescriptivist and say that's wrong? Or was it just like an anthropologist trying to observe what was? You know, it's an interesting question, and there's no complete answer one way or another in the sense that I think the intention might not have been prescriptivism in the way we think of it today. But in the writing, it was fairly prescriptivist. There were there were clearly ideas about how language should be and how it shouldn't. And often the ones that were not writing the dictionaries or writing the grammar books were described as vulgar or common. Uh, and most of the grammar books and usage guides in the 18th century were written by those of the upper class, and it's their norms that got prescribed. But, for example, Robert Loth, who really is the most influential of the grammarians because he essentially wrote the first real grammar book and the one that was basically copied by many later grammar books and used in elementary schools uh, in Britain and America widely. He was writing a grammar for his son. It wasn't intended for wider distribution. Um, In fact, he probably didn't make much off of it because it was pilfered (laughs) from him. But for his son, he was hoping that by describing the rules of English, in sort of a Latin form on the basis of Latin, then he would help his son in school, especially with the learning of Latin. So Robert Loth actually used things from Latin in Latin to describe English that really had no bearing on the way that English was structured. So that whole prescription against not ending a sentence with a preposition, for example, was something that was dispreferred in Latin, and he felt it was more elegant to not do it for that reason. So he didn't say, don't do this, He simply said, it's more elegant in English to not do this. And then that got later taken as a hard and fast rule about English, do not, and a sentence with the preposition. And splitting infinitives was also from Latin, because in Latin, the infinitive was one word. So you couldn't split it, or you we shouldn't split it. Um, but in English, we have two plus a verb makes the infinitive, to go, to walk, to sing. And so splitting that is different. But yet, because he took that rule from Latin, where it applied in a very different way, we applied it to English, and it kind of makes no sense sense, but uh, that became again law. So it was prescription in the way it was taken. It wasn't prescription in the way it was written. Let's talk about us and ahs. Um, There we go. I love it. I love how you illustrated that. See, you're so good. (laughs) (laughs) Placeholders, cognitive helper, weakness. What's What's the data show? 
you know, the data is very different from what people think of those. And, you know, people don't like them. They're not socially beneficial for you, perhaps, but they are linguistically and cognitively beneficial. They seem to work as speech planning devices. And so you tend to say them before more difficult, more abstract, less common, uh, more uh, less familiar words. They'll come up more often than the opposite. Um, and also when you're constructing very long, com complex syntactic structure. So at the beginning of a sentence, just like you illustrated in a, such a lovely fashion before, because your brain is actually having to do really, really intense computations of how to get these sentences to structure, but also it has to look for these words in your lexical dictionary that you have in your head, right? Obviously you don't have a real dictionary, but you have neural, neural networks that your brain has to activate to find words. If they're words you use often, those are well-activated pathways. If they're not used that often, you have to go a little deeper. It takes a second. The um and uh signal that. But why um and uh and not just a silent pause, which is what you hear you should do in all those public speaking classes. Um, and that's, oh, see, I did another um. And that is because we have to signal to our listener that we're not done because listeners are kind of rude and they like to jump in on our turns. And we know this, we know this about the people we talk with. We love them, but we know they'll steal our turns at the slightest opportunity. And therefore we have to uh or um. We uh when we need a short delay so they know I'm coming right back. And we um when, yeah they might have time to go get a drink <laughs> because it's going to take us a little longer. So it might be appropriate for a Toastmaster or someone advising a speaker who's about to talk to the public not to um and er because it's a TED talk. It's not a TED dialogue. But to eliminate that from our normal discourse among people would be counterproductive and dysfunctional. I think you could definitely say that. Certainly in a public speaking context, we expect people to be rehearsed and practiced and know what they're going to say. And it, it, it doesn't mean you don't know what you're talking about when you uh, are um, but what it means is maybe you haven't rehearsed it as much. When we do studies where we give people a picture and we ask them to describe it, or, you know, like a, a it can be not necessarily a picture, but a, some sort of design, we say, describe this. What we find is when we do it the first time, they have a lot of ums and uhs because they're trying to figure out how to describe it. When we ask them an hour later to do the same picture again, they do much better in terms of umming and uhing rate. They don't uh and um so much because they've already worked through what they're going to say. We expect the same thing when someone gives a presentation. If you haven't rehearsed your presentation or practiced it at all, you're going to have more ums and uhs. And I think as listeners, we know this and we expect more perfection in those contexts. But in a casual conversation or even an interview where people haven't rehearsed and we don't expect them to, it's more natural and organic to um and uh. And also it, it does really beneficial things. In fact, when we look at perception data in terms of how it helps people on the other side, how it helps listeners cognitively, it seems to help them process new information faster when things are flagged with a uh or an um. And it also seems to help them remember it better when we give them little wow. pop quizzes about an hour after they've heard these words. So how thanks. How did like, literally like, the word like, how did that become our go-to placeholder as opposed to, I almost want to say, or how do you say, or just some other one-syllable phrase? Well, I think like had a... Uh, meaning that was really useful and was able to be taken over to do this discourse marking that you're talking about. So if you look at the history of like, 
we see in about tw- at about 1200, like comes into the language um, to express the verb meaning, to like something. And it's not till about 1500 that we start to get preposition and conjunction like, and those express similarity. So you have eyes like the sky, or, you know, he seems like he's a good person. Those are prepositional and conjunctive likes. What they do is set up a comparison or a similarity between speakers. Now, when we start to remove that like from its position in the syntax, but use it to express similarity all over the sentence rather than that one specific phrase. So as a sentential adverbial, instead of a adverbial within the sentence, we see that basically that same idea of subjective similarity or comparison gets used. So you could say, he's like a brother to me, becomes like, he's a brother to me. It expresses that same sense of similarity, but it's a little more emphatic and it's drawing your right. notice to it. So it's it's actually the same use. It's simply moved position to express it over the entire sentence rather than that one phrase. It's sort of flagging to a listener. But we would never say he's like a brother to like me, or we would never say he's a brother to like me. Right, because like is pattern, so it occurs in very specific cases and for very specific functions. You either use it as an approximator, so you use it where you'd use about. Yeah. He is like 12, or he was about 12. So it's one-to-one substitution there. So that would determine where it fits, only where about would go. We use it as a quotative verb, so that would be a one-to-one substitution for the verb to say, and that would only occur before something you're quoting. Um, either a thought right? Sort of I'm quoting myself thinking, or I'm quoting what he said, not, not verbatim necessarily, but the gist. So he was like, I'm not going to go. And I was like, yes, you are that kind of use. And then we have it at his discourse marker where it's either going to occur at the beginning of a sentence or generally before a noun phrase. Mm -hmm. So he's like a brother to me. He, um, you know, the friend was like going to help people. So that would be a verb phrase, but it's very specific the types of phrasal phrasal components that it occurs before, right? Oh, one one thing to say about like that's really interesting. Uh, what we some Stanford researchers did a study on what kinds of words change meaning more over time, and they find that words with more meanings initially tend to change meaning over time because they're not as tied to that first singular meaning. And like right. has developed many many meanings over time, even before it got that discourse marker. So that is a prime candidate for meaning shift even further. Mm-hmm. Right. Archery is not going to change over time, but as might change over time. Right. Exactly. Um, have you done any research or do you know of any research on this, uh, I'm going to say new phrase, new trend where people will express an opinion thusly? It's almost like I want to say it's kind of uh, approaching and then they'll say what they want to say. I have noticed, I've seen the studies, young people more anxious. Is that a part of not just the plain statement of actual thesis versus what we're doing now with the, it's almost like, you know, that time, I almost want to say, what is this? You know, I think a lot of times we say they're anxious. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't do psychological studies of of stress, so I can't point to that. But I will say, for example, with um and uh, there was a psychologist in the 1950s that thought that was tied to stress and anxiety. And he found, in fact, the more anxious the group, the less umming and uhing they did. So I don't know that that pertains to like, but I think we think of like similarly. And I wouldn't say that I I think it's tied to anxiety, but I do think it's tied these, these sort of ways we hedge what we're saying to a different kind 
kind of politeness culture that we have today and towards increasing subjectivity. Now, the switch in politeness culture went from one of what was called positive politeness um, up through the 19th century to negative politeness being preferred in the 20th century. And I'm going to unpack those fancy words that we linguists use just to sound impressive uh, down. Positive politeness is the need to be liked and admired. The fact that we want to be all friends and we like each other and we compliment each That's why we compliment each other um, because we want to say nice things and make each other feel good. A lot of 18th and 19th century behavior with these really ridiculous politeness routines, you know, no, you, sir. No, absolutely not you, sir, my right, fi- fair lady. Right. That's or all- how in Hamilton all their missives yes. were addressed uh, with these, uh, you know, these these very flowery uh, Yes, flowery or, language. And that is yes. really tied to positive politeness. And it seems silly to us now because that is something less we do. We don't do as much. But we're much more interested in not imposing on each other, not having our individual freedom and rights stepped upon and trampled upon. And that's negative politeness. Mm-hmm. And and I think when we express things, we want we are recognizing the right, other person's right to individual thought and freedom. So we hedge what we're saying to try to mitigate the potential um, sort of Im, uh, imposition on that speaker. And people sometimes dislike that, especially those that are more tied to positive politeness, which tends to be, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to have to invoke the age thing here. Older speakers, right? That shift, which is why we hate when younger speakers say no problem after thank you instead of you're welcome. That is a perfect example of the shift from positive to negative politeness. You're welcome is a positive politeness feature. It addresses making someone feel good. No problem is a negative politeness feature. It addresses not stepping on someone's toes. Like, no, it was no imposition, so don't worry about it. And I think really this is what's driving a lot of these generational divides in feeling like people are uncertain when actually they're just wanting to make sure they're saying, this is my opinion. It doesn't have to be your opinion. I would never want to trample on your individual rights to think. Right. I think this whole idea that we're getting less polite over time is really tied to this shift in what kinds of politeness are preferred. And negative politeness is not considered polite to those that think positive politeness is the way to go. I don't know how necessarily intertwined with linguistics the idea of positive and negative politeness are. They're fascinating concepts to me. You just threw them at me. I love them. I wonder how much though, so this might not be a linguistic question, how much does negative politeness either dovetail with or correlate with just fear of giving offense? Is that another way to say negative politeness? Yes, I think they're both tied together, fear of giving offense. And that's sort of this idea that we have individual rights and freedoms and individual ways of thinking, and we don't want to impose on that. What's really interesting is it's also- Sorry to interrupt, but that is generational, and maybe Mm -hmm. it's anxious, and maybe one of the reasons that the younger generation is anxious is because they've been inculcated in this idea that to give offense is a horrible thing. So this is why you have the standard disclaimer of, I almost want to say that it's approaching and- you know, it's negative politeness, but such fear of giving offense versus saying the plain thing, which is more likely, if it's stated bluntly, it is more likely to give offense. You know, I think truthfully, though, if you think about how older adults couch things, they're not necessarily more direct. I think that you're um, sort of combining two different ideas. Yeah. I'll, right. I'll I, I think that, a yeah. lot of people are indirect. And in fact, our culture is indirect. If you look back in old English, oh my God, rudeness was crazy. And and people didn't say things like, we call them whimperatives in, in certain aspects of linguistics. This, would you mind? Could you please? That's a whimperative. In old English, it'd be, go get the trash out. 
or yeah. you die. I mean, it wasn't polite at all, right? So we are very indirect. We just don't understand that we are because that's what's normal to us. When someone's indirect in a way that's not normal to us, we think, oh my God, would they say what they mean? But we don't say what we mean all the time. So, you know, it's all a matter of perspective. I have, I've, I teach uh, students that don't get any older every year while I get older. So, you know, I get 18 to 19 to 20 year olds my whole career and they are not anxious in the way that I think adults tend to think they are. They are anxious about the world. They are anxious about the way they're judged. But I don't, I feel actually that these, this generation is more secure than I was. And my peers were in our time when we were in college, they feel much more smug in in their rightness about the world. So I, I just don't know that that's, you know, again, this is not really linguistics, but my personal experience with students is not that they're anxious in general, more than we were before in different eras. What I do know is they are, they are paranoid about their speech because so many adults have told them they are are meaningless in their speech that they're they're mm. not using appropriate words in their speech and many of my students come in with paranoia about the likes and literallys and vocal fry that litter their speech and so i make them study them to understand why they're using them where they're using them and then they can decide once you understand your pattern you can decide do i want to try to decrease this pattern because now i understand it or am i proud of this because it has a pattern and it's not what people tell me it is you know i think that's up to students i'm not here to tell people how they they should think about language i'm here to say there are different views about it. And one is prescriptive and one is linguistic. And I think it's only fair you know both. The name of Valerie Fridland's new book is Like Literally Dude. Uh, Look out for the paperback edition in a year, which is, of course, going to be called, I almost want to say, Sus Bra. (laughs) Like Literally Dude, arguing for the good in bad English. Valerie, Professor Valerie Fridland, thank you so much. You're welcome. And for Pesca Plus subscribers, there is a bonus extended interview with Professor Fridland, and this will have actual words, bonus content, not just the regular interview you just heard, but with all the uhs and ahs and likes left in. And now the spiel. A fire killed 18,000 cows in Texas. It's a horrifyingly normal disaster. That is a horrifyingly normal headline from the website Vox, but not, in fact, a horrifyingly normal disaster, or else it wouldn't have made news and inspire a somewhat misleading headline in Vox and a lot of other places. After the fire in Dimmit, Texas, which did kill more cows than any fire in U.S. history, it is believed, there was a lot of coverage, and news coverage demands statistics to provide context. The biggest provider of statistics was an advocacy group called AWI, the Animal Welfare Institute. Here's a very typical way their statistics were used in coverage. Quote, in the last 10 years, AWI estimates that nearly 6.5 million animals have died in bonfires. In fact, the Vox article had a prominent chart. It was labeled at least 6.5 million farmed animals died by fire in the past decade. The true death count is likely far higher. And then they break it down by years with 2017 and 2020 having more than a million and a half deaths of animals. Six and a half million barn fire deaths? My first thought, how many barns are there in the U.S.? 
looked it up. According to Bloomberg, the answer is a little over 600,000. Wait a minute. So 10 animal deaths per barn a year? Are barns burning down all over the country and no one's reporting on these barns? You'd think there'd be at least one Instagram page, the barn fires of Madison County. There'd be a lot of content for it, no? The answer is no. My original question about all these barns having 10 dead animals per. There is not a barn to burn in every county. Barn fire deaths are not evenly distributed. American agribusiness is dominated by huge factory farms, which, when these structures house animals, are called barns. Fires break out in these huge facilities sometimes, not horrifyingly normally, because if it were the norm, i.e. if it happens as often as it doesn't, animal agriculture would not be a viable business. But even so, that seemed like a lot to me. Six and a half million animal deaths since 2013. 650,000 animals incinerated a year. This has the flavor of a misleading stat, and I could now report the exact nature of that flavor. It tastes like chicken. The Vox article does say in paragraph four that the deaths are mostly chicken. Eventually, after the graph and a picture of the cattle facility on fire and a horrifying headline or the headline with the word horrifying, Vox reveals that by animal deaths being mostly chicken, they mean 92% chicken. But that is an undercount from the actual stats from the AWI on AWI's own site. They report that, quote, in conjunction with our end-of-year statistics, AWI also released an update to our original report, Barn Fires, a Deadly Threat to Farm Animals, which counted for barn fires from 2018 through 2021. In that count, nearly 98% of the reported deaths were chicken, egg-laying hens accounting for most. Another way to look at this stat is that for the last few years, from 2018 through 2021, 15,000 non-chicken animals have died in barn fires a year. That is sad. That is a little sad. I mean, no one this side of a serial killer or Iowa Senator Joni Ernst finds pleasure in an animal suffering. Not fair to Joni Ernst. She just got elected based on a ad where she castrated a cow. Fine. Well, you don't castrate a cow. You castrate a bull. See, I know my animals. But, you know, like I said, it is sad. 15,000 non-chicken animals dying every year. The AWA clearly knows that 15,000 non-chicken animals dying is not as sad, won't motivate the public as four-legged animals dying. That's why they don't mention until very late and tucked inside a number of reports that almost all the deaths every year are chicken deaths. This is from the AWI site. Hundreds of thousands of animals perished in barn fires last year. In early January, AWI once again reported on the number of animals killed in barn fires across the United States for the preceding year. In 2021, more than 681,000 farm animals are known to have suffered horrific deaths in these incidents, bringing the total number of farm animals killed via fire in the last two years alone to a staggering 2.3 million. You could click around and find the fact that it's almost all chickens, but they're not going to tell you, unless you really go hunting and pecking for it, that it's almost all chickens. And yeah, I gotta say that it's a little sad that so many chickens died, but really, the AWI knows, and I think you know this, unless you're a dedicated vegetarian, nobody really cares about chickens. It's somewhat sad that chickens have died in a fire before they could be cooked on a fire. We don't expect an outlet like Vox to necessarily tell it to you straight, but 
This reporting was all over the news, CBS, BBC, even in places like not Vox, but Fox. Nearly six and a half million farm animals have died in barn fires since 2013, according to the AWI report. They quote that in 2021 alone, 681,825 farm animals were killed in barn fires. It's so exact when most of these barn fires, when there's chickens dead, just have a round number ending in zero, zero. The report was disseminated on Yahoo. Millions of people saw that Vox reports, but who cares? I mean, vegetarians care. Pescatarians may care, but no non-veg or pesk cares about dead chickens or else those people would not eat chickens. The point is to bury the thing, the fact that no one cares about so that the horrors seem more real than they are to the public, right? Don't talk about the chickens because... The chicken-eating public doesn't care so much about chickens. The general point, and this goes way beyond the AWI, this is uh, a trend of all advocacy organizations and how almost all media deals with them. They pretend or want to give the reader the impression that the animal incineration rate is 50 times higher than it actually is, if you don't count chickens. And I understand why that happens. They're an advocacy organization. They're trying to advocate. But it's just so distressing that there is no pushback or critical thought visited upon this advocacy. Look, I am not going to pretend that the cow deaths made huge national news. I was alerted to it by my producer, Corey, who lives in Oklahoma. So if a lot of cows die in West Texas, he's going to hear about it. Who knows? According to wind patterns, it may have smelled like brisket that day in Tulsa, more so than usual. But what I saw in the coverage is what we so often see. Advocacy group makes a claim. They're not necessarily lying, but of course there's an impression they wish to give, a conclusion they want the public to come to. The media, either on board with them, you know, of a like mind, or just incurious in general, or just wanting some official sounding statistic and ballast to amplify a claim, doesn't bring to bear anything that the media should bring to bear. There is no countervailing force to rebut the advocacy organization. It gets a lot more serious when the stakes are a lot higher than chicken deaths. There are many anti-factory farm activists bemoaning this fire, spreading the alarming AWI, six and a half million dead animals in a barn statistic. And it's not a total lie But when you think about it, it's never going to be pulled back. What's really pressuring anybody to put that supposed fact into context, to correct it, to moderate or modify it? Me? Randomly coming across this claim and saying, huh, that doesn't seem entirely accurate and spending an inordinate amount of my time and your time, and thank you for that indulgence, in a process of talking about burnt up chickens And then maybe, you know, I did say to myself, you know, maybe I should, as a regular feature on my substack, the Pesca Profundity substack, maybe I should have a feature called Questionable Advocacy Organization Fact of the Day. But really, is there a market for that? People say they want accuracy, but when the inaccuracy is coming from an advocacy group of a cause that generally fits into your worldview, do we really seek out aggressive rebuttals? People want their opponent's claims disproved. People also want their preferred claims generally validated, certainly not overly questioned. If people demanded the scrutiny of all claims, 
journalism would not look like what journalism looks like today. And this takes a lot of forms. And this is where I talked about it goes way beyond chickens. Think about what we talked about the other day, how frequent the murder of black teenagers are by white men in America. Or think about frequent claims that take something that you always hear conservatives say, America pays the highest corporate tax rate in the world. Or think about the claim that trans women are dominating sport. Or think about the claim that the presence of trans women have and will have zero impact on sport. How much we really want our claims to be accurate versus how much we want to just be able to navigate a messed up and ambiguous world where we strongly suspect someone who is entirely unaligned with our interests is benefiting. I think that's what's driving our capacity and our appetite for accuracy, to say nothing of chicken. Given how complicated reality is and given how much reality is fed to us through devices that we carry in our pocket or wear on our wrists or sit in front of every hour of every day, why would most of us invest the time or actual subscription dollars rebutting claims that if not perfectly technically true are at least directionally in line with our values? We wouldn't. We don't. And then ask yourself, oh, and who would be silly enough to spend their time investing their resources or reputations in pursuit of such quote-unquote knowledge? Most of us would not do that. I do it a little bit, but not in every show, not on every outlet, not in every way I can, because I think in many ways I'm like most barn deaths and most people, 98% chicken. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara has a nose for news there in Tulsa. He's the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. And Michelle Pesca is chief philanthropist of Pesca Productions. She's also in charge of animal husbandry. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo. And thanks for listening.